0: Long before the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, before climate models, or even computers, writers have been in the business of imagining our future. Decades before humans left Earth's atmosphere, before we even left the ground, science fiction put us on faraway planets. Many of these stories were reactions to the societal problems and technological advancements of their time. And by projecting far into the future, they created worlds for us to explore and get lost in. From the comfort of my own home, I've spent dozens of hours on Mars and explored the galaxy from the bridge of the Enterprise, the Rocinante and the Normandy. And I've picked through the ruins of a post-apocalyptic North America, fighting zombies and scavenging old grocery stores for supplies, which I have enjoyed far more than I ever would the real thing, by the way. But speculative fiction is more than just escapism. Though let me be clear that I am a firm believer in the value of having fictional worlds as refuges when reality lets us down. It's also by its nature an exercise in futurology, which is a study of the development of social and technological advancements with the explicit goal of predicting what life will be like in the future. Futurists draw on everything from physics to evolutionary biology to climate science, projecting historic trends outwards to predict where we could be headed, Science fiction, as a subgenre of speculative fiction, basically does the same thing. It creates imagined futures that are often deeply connected to and reflect back on our present. In fact, science fiction has inspired many real world technologies, including submarines, atomic power, and cell phones. And still others like television, the internet, credit cards, and mass surveillance were anticipated by science fiction long before they became a reality. And while we still don't have flying cars, replicators, teleportation, or warp drives, all of those things are being actively researched, right now, in some form or another. But importantly, science fiction doesn't just present us with a societal wish list of technological gadgets. And it's more than a menu of options for societal collapse. Would you choose climate change, pandemics, a nuclear holocaust, or a zombie apocalypse? These fictional worlds, even when set on other planets or other realities entirely, can be a powerful lens on our own reality. They often grapple with tough questions about what it means to be humans on Earth, together, right now. Feminist science fiction, indigenous futurisms, Afrofuturism, and African futurism all explicitly grapple with themes of inequality, identity, and technology, linking the future with the past to shed light on the present. This makes works of speculative fiction not just entertaining or meaningful on a personal level, but also powerful oracles. Such stories can warn us about where we're headed, like the ecological and social dystopias in Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake, Cherie Demeline's The Marrow Thieves, The Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi, or Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. And, importantly, science fiction can also imagine new pathways exploring communities or ways of life that, instead of extrapolating our current moment to its darkest extremes, create new possibilities outside the bounds of our current reality. Books like The Fifth Sacred Thing by Starhawk or Brown Girl in the Ring by Nalo Hopkinson imagine more sustainable lifeways in the near aftermath of ecological or economic collapse. Many of these books fall under the umbrella of what's often called climate fiction, yet another circle in the Venn diagram of literary genres. Not all works of climate fiction are set in the future. Many, like Barbara Kingsolver's flight behavior, are set in the present, reflecting our current climate reality. Still others are set in the far distant future, like N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy. Throughout this season, we keep coming back to the power of storytelling to humanize the climate crisis, to raise awareness and inspire action. So when it comes to climate change fiction, how are we doing? The answer is, we don't really know yet. There's been little research about the impact of science or climate fiction on attitudes and beliefs about climate change. One study by Matthew Schneider Mayerson found that readers of climate fiction tend to be younger, more liberal, and more concerned about climate change than average. So while such novels may not necessarily change beliefs about climate change, the study suggested that they may be inspiring people to act on those beliefs. But there's a double-edged sword here. The study also found that reading climate fiction was associated with more negative emotions about climate change, which the author warns us could lead to negative outcomes, like despair or disengagement. While there's been little research on this when it comes to fiction, we can draw on research in psychology and communication science, which has found that fear-based appeals can often backfire unless people are given a sense of agency. It may not be enough to convince people that climate change is a problem we need to give them a roadmap towards solutions. In other words, one of the powers of speculative fiction isn't just in helping us imagine possible futures. It might also help us to make those futures a reality. The Smithsonian Institution is putting together an exhibit called Futures for its 175th anniversary. And in a recent interview, the director of the Arts and Industries Museum, Rachel Goslins, talked about why this kind of visioning is so important. We have so much help imagining what could go wrong, she says, and we don't have as much help imagining what could go right. If we don't know where we want to get to, we're not going to be able to figure out how to get there. And that study by Matthew Schneider Mayerson reinforces the power of storytelling to lead the way. Many of the readers he interviewed reported that the novels they read helped make the future more accessible and less nebulous. And that's why, for the last two episodes of our season about climate data, we are going to focus on fiction, not facts. Specifically on the world-building, future-crafting writers who tell stories to warn us, teach us, inspire us, and motivate us to work for the future of our choosing. Welcome to Warm Regards. I'm Jacqueline Gill.
1: And I'm Ramesh Longani. For the first episode in our two-part finale, Jacqueline and I sat down with two writers who have been drawing roadmaps toward the sustainable climate future. And if you're a longtime listener to our show, you'll hear a familiar voice. I'm Eric Holthaus, and
2: I am a writer, a journalist, um, meteorologist, and recently finished writing the book The Future Earth.
1: For this conversation, we decided to pair Eric with someone who's well-known for grappling with climate change in his novels.
3: Hi, I'm Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, Stan. I am an American science fiction writer, and I live in Davis, California.
1: Like The Future Earth, Stan's most recent book, The Ministry for the Future, outlined the roadmap toward the climate future that's more utopian than most climate fiction. Both books envision a world where we actually addressed climate change. We talked with Stan and Eric about their work and the power of storytelling to drive climate action.
0: Thank you both for joining us today, and also for joining us for a conversation together. And In honor of Eric as the founder of this podcast back in 2016, I'd like to start us off with a quote from your book, The Future Earth. Radical change needs to focus on not only preventing apocalypse, but also building up a picture of a future that's worth fighting for. Imagining a world as a burning hellscape is for some reason much easier than imagining a world where we come together and build a new version of human society that works for every person and every species. So, To start us off, why is it harder to write or imagine futures in this way? Why is it easier to write an apocalypse than something more utopian? Eric, why don't you go first?
2: I think, thank you, first of all, for having us here. This is such a huge honor to be back on the podcast. I don't know. I mean, at least for me personally, it's more fascinating to watch a train wreck than watching like the train tracks be built, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like we're just drawn to those like red gaping wounds, like r- drama, personal tragedy, that kind of stuff as people, as humans, um, we're, we're sort of hardwired to show up for each other in those cases. So like in the base of our brain is this desire to help each other in emergencies to sort of drop what we're doing and to attend to chaos. And I feel like, you know, we are equally Built to help each other construct societies that work for everyone, but it just takes a lot longer. It takes it, it's it's sort of like it uses different brain chemicals to do that work. So it may be um, really uh, more difficult to draw attention quickly to that sort of a story than it would be the other way around. I, I, at least that's kind of what I've. Experienced as a climate scientist and a climate journalist is that telling the story of disaster is really an easy story to tell. And so that's the first story that a lot of people tell. The much more difficult and much more meaningful and important stories to tell the idea, um, the facts about the future, the facts about the possibilities that are still available to us, and sort of leave that up for debate or for choice. Too often, I feel like we get pigeonholed into this inevitable chaos or inevitable disaster narrative about climate change, because that's just the easiest story to tell. And that's the story that gets people riled up the easiest. But yeah, I I feel like we're not at a place in in human history where that story really is as important as it once was. So it's really nice to see this sort of growth of alternative futures. And those stories clearly have always been around. For hundreds of years, we've been telling aspirational stories of our futures, and there's lots of traditions of of that sort of storytelling. Um, But it's nice to sort of see those stories be emphasized in a world where we are clearly living at a moment where what's worked for people what's worked for for some people is no longer possible, where we're sort of being forced with a choice with COVID, with climate emergency, with racial injustice, we're being forced to turn quickly now. And it's just sort of, you know, still up for grabs what might happen.
0: Oh, that's interesting. It sounds like it's both a matter of psychology, how we're wired on some fundamental level, but it's also the way that we're drawn to these narratives or the way that they grip us as a species of storytellers. Stan, I'm really curious to hear what you have to say as a fiction author about this idea that we'd rather watch a train crash than watch a train being built.
3: Yeah, well, I would agree with Eric. I mean, it occurred to me several years ago that a novel's plot begins when something goes wrong. So stories are initiated not by ordinary daily life, but by something going wrong in that daily life, and then you've got your plot. So the daily life part of it, um, what you might call the anthropology part of the novel, is exposed. If something goes wrong in that system, you follow the disaster, the thing going wrong, and then you understand how things were when they went right. That's how most detective stories work. So there's that. And then you've got the idea that you want to describe something better happening. Well, if you think of... Um, the ordinary story is being like soap operas and then the plan for something better being like architectural blueprints Mm. and you you've got utopian fiction where it's supposed to be the combination of soap opera and blueprints it just wasn't um it's hard and then also we live in a a global capitalist system that is global it, it, it's how the world is run some people call it capitalist realism and then in certain traditions you'd call it hegemonic thinking and hegemony is very powerful it's it imitates normality itself like the laws of physics and you think well this is the way the world works and the same way you think of gravity or the sun coming up you think capitalist realism so if you want to present a better system, you have this um, standing, especially in the novel, you've got this problem. The novel's there to describe how things are. The utopian plan is trying to describe how things ought to be. And those two are a standing uh, conflict that you can't reconcile. You, you can um, blink back and forth really fast between the two, but you can't amalgamate them into one thing. Mm -hmm. So um, science fiction is great at solving this dilemma by being said in the future, you can go from what is to what ought to be, and you can present it as a problem, as a plot, things have gone wrong, got to make them right, that then becomes a story in itself. So that's been my solution very often.
1: So Stan, I want to follow up on that a bit. You said that fiction often starts with a problem. But starting with a problem could have the story go in two ways, a dystopian narrative, or one that is more hopeful. What are some other strategies that you specifically use to build your hopeful narrative?
3: Well, I let it take place over a 30-year period. This was to try to give readers... I, I'm, say that my project was to give us a kind of a best-case scenario, that if we did things right we kind of ran the table and doing things right we could get to a good future but i wanted the reader to believe that it was possible so um giving it 30 years allowed me the time for good things to occur then i had a big cast and a lot of formal games in other words different points of view different forms dialogues mating notes eyewitness accounts uh, the ordinary dramatized scene a couple of main characters you could follow but a lot of other stuff, including Mm -hmm. little mini essays on various parts of the problem. And for me, the eyewitness accounts were the crucial discovery. I I didn't understand before that that's really a genre in itself that's different from novels per se. Mm -hmm.
4: Because an
3: eyewitness is telling you, often years Mm -hmm. later, what happened to them at a crucial moment, like when, when slow violence turns into fast violence or something dynamic happens and the eyewitness was there and is later on being interviewed. So they tell it fast, it's very compressed, and they judge it, what it meant to them, what it meant to the world. And these are, these are the characteristics of the eyewitness account. So when I discovered that, I started making up eyewitness accounts over the next 30 years hmm. um, to give it a kind of a global feeling and a sense of a, a world story rather than just your ordinary novels, you know, half dozen characters in a, in a single setting. So it was a a juggling act, but it Mm -hmm. was the right form for that particular project.
0: One thing that's really struck me about both of your works is that they present a roadmap for the future. Eric, even though your book is nonfiction, it's really creative in that way. Do you use any of these same strategies or literary devices in your book?
2: you know, I referred to it in my head as I was writing as a speculative nonfiction. So it's sort Mm -hmm. of like saying, you know, my training is as a meteorologist and as a climate scientist. So sort of thinking of like, how would the models of the next 30 years, you know, from from now until 2050, what's the uncertainty range uh, in the models of, you know, like how quickly could Antarctica melt or how how fast could we be experiencing record floods on a different level than we currently are in sort of also meshing that with how quickly democracy works uh, in the US and around the world, how quickly social movements work and modeling you know what, what's been the 20th century history of nonviolent social movements, um, where can change happen? Uh, what would that look like if, sort of all of that plays out over the next 30 years in, you know, kind of like what Stan said, a best case scenario, but also a realistic best case scenario. We're not going to have some sort of technological magic bullet that's invented overnight. It's going to be a process where over the rest of our lifetimes, you know, the effects of climate change will continue to get worse no matter what we do. That's baked into the climate system. But it's sort of thinking about, like, if you had a a Green New Deal, or if you had some sort of socially just centered response at an emergency scale, that sort of pays attention to the voices of people who've been marginalized for centuries, how quickly could things change? And it, and it, it it seems like it could happen really quickly. You know, like I wrote this book in 2019, most of it, And I'm really, you know, like astonished as 2020 was happening, all of this, you know, I have this sort of literary device of like, there has to be some major disaster that happens in 2020 that gets people to thinking on an emergency timescale about climate change. And it happened. And I would just, you know, like, I'm still sort of in shock that it happened, like kind of in line, you know, and I have in 2021, I have a new president being inaugurated with climate as the top of his agenda. And that happened. And it's just Mm -hmm. still shocking to me that even what I thought was sort of like a marginally extreme best case scenario ended up being in some ways a little bit conservative. And that's kind of in what you see, like, and you look over the past 150 years of social movements, that's kind of how it happens. Once it happens, it happens quickly, or it can happen quickly.
1: In your work, both of you converged on this optimistic vision of the future. And so I'm curious to know, how did you both arrive at that vision? What was your process to get there?
3: For me, it's been a project for um, a little over 30 years to write utopian fiction on purpose, uh, most of the time. And uh, by that, I wanted to uh, reshape the conception of utopia from being a perfect end point Hmm. Uh, to a name for a kind of history, a progressing dynamic history where things are getting better. And that would be my definition of utopian fiction um, coming out of Ursula Le Guin. So um, I feel like it's a, a somewhat empty niche in the cultural uh, ecology There aren't enough stories like that. And so if you do one in an interesting way, you find that people wanted stories like that, because everybody would like to have a stronger sense that if we did the right things, the future could be good or better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this was just the end of, I mean, my book, The Ministry for the Future, was just the end of a process. Of of taking different angles on the problem, and and I would have to say that at last I decided, well, let's just go right at the center of the problem and see, instead of <clears throat> telling it through metaphorical means or on Mars or or in the deep past um, or on the moon, various angles I had taken Antarctica, et cetera, et cetera, to just go straight at it this time.
1: How did you come to that vision, Eric?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. I
2: think that. You know, like many people who've been working in climate change for a couple of decades, I feel like at some point it just sort of hit me that this is a choice. You know, your choice of how you think about the future affects the actions that you will take today. I mean, hmm. that's the whole point of, of imagination and uh, planning and, you know, thinking ahead to think about what sort of path you might take. But I realize it also... Sort of eats away mm-hmm. at at you. My last few decades <laughs> sort of manifested in like this sort of escalating sense of climate anxiety. Or at one point, you know, about five or six years ago, right before my first um, child was born, I had really just sort of like mentally written it written it off, like saying like we're effed, you know, like we're not going to do this. Um, we're not going to fix what we need to fix in time. The problem's just too big, and it was such an incredibly dark period of time for me, you know, three or four months uh, mm-hmm. that lasted. And it ended with the birth of my my oldest son. And, and it just sort of like that sparked for me, this new way of thinking about the world. And it's r- extremely cliche, but that's, that's how it happened for me at least to sort of think about, well, I'm not doing this work for me. I'm not even doing this work for the people that are alive today. I'm doing this work of trying to to think about what we need to do, what, what's possible for us to do in sort of uh, context of all of the life that exists on, on Earth. And, and sort of thinking about very quickly once I got into that um, mindset, sort of realizing, you know, this is, again, this is work that's been done over hundreds of years by non-Western or marginalized writers in in a way where, where, yeah, I have that quote in the book from Ursula Le Guin that capitalism feels inevitable just like the divine right of kings felt inevitable, and that's just not true. And so once you kind of break out of that, allow yourself to think of alternative systems that currently exist that are just being intentionally marginalized by folks in power right now it feels a lot more possible. Like the change that's necessary feels a lot more possible. And mm-hmm. I just chose to live in that world instead of in the sort of world of dark climate despair. And yeah, it just ended up being a choice for me.
0: Both of you have mentioned the importance of Ursula Le Guin, who I also love. And it makes me wonder, who else are you reading? Who's inspiring you as you've been envisioning your own climate futures?
2: well i mean stan's books have been very helpful for me (laughs) um it's been really amazing to sort of watch someone imagine that world in multiple different ways and sort of figure out how a society might act as you are in the process of this transformational change over decades of, of time and you know i'm just thinking about especially of this over the this last year i've been like you know rereading and rereading and Um, visiting different parts of Octavia Butler's parable of the sower and watching the expanse as well, trying to, to again, imagine the politics as it's playing out. There's always going to be a contested future. Uh, You know, there's always going to be a struggle, you know, a revolution is never complete. So, So sort of, you know, breaking away from this sort of idealistic, naive view that I had probably 15 or 20 years ago, about this like techno utopian future where all we need is solar panels and wind farms and we'll fix the problem. You know, the problem is is hundreds of years in the making, very, very deep and grained in society. And all of that is going to have to be rewritten and repaired um, in order to get to the place where we need to go. So, this is a lot deeper problem than a lot of people think of but it's also more accessible, I think, to each one of us than most people are aware of.
3: Uh, I appreciate what you said, Eric, and thanks for uh, reading my books. I was um, Ursula Guin was a teacher and then a friend of mine and uh, um, a kind of an elder sister figure in my life, um, very uh, beloved. And she taught me a lot. Uh, one thing is just the idea of literature as a, a kind of religion that you make meaning out of the stories that you tell yourself and you can you can say that they're backed up by you know divine right of kings or something but in in fact it's the stories themselves that make up the religion so in my own books I've sometimes I've said well let's make this one a comedy and just show that after climate disasters happen young people aren't going to be sitting on the ground casting ashes on their head and weeping, they're gonna be mm. trying to make the best they can out of the situation. Mm-hmm. So I'd do a book like New York 2140 or another kind of coping in green earth and and just keep telling the story from different angles and realize that there's not just one story. So you can't, not only one writer can't exhaust all the stories, but the whole community of writers can't exhaust all the stories. They're more or less infinite because I've been writing my own stories, I haven't read as much as I ought to have recently, but I've seen something going on about people writing about disaster striking a small community where that small community, and this is partly because of narrative convenience of keeping to a normal novel, that small community becomes the only space of the story. And, Mm. And indeed it's the story of getting cut off from the rest of the world. But I keep thinking to myself, well, that's, interesting, but I wonder what's going on in the rest of the world, and I wonder what emergency services is doing, and I wonder what, hmm. you know, um, the UN uh, climate emergency forces are doing. In other words, my mind keeps going global. And I think this is somewhat me, but also somewhat science fiction. The science fiction response is to look at the larger systems uh, within which your your major characters uh, live and, in, and try to tell the story of the system as well as the characters. I persist in thinking that the the global story is, and and this is sort of at the level of the scientists, right? I mean, you got uh, some of your climate scientists, paleoecologists, um, you use the local, like you know, a core in some lake in Ohio, to tell you about the global what was happening mm-hmm. the, in the whole northern hemisphere. But say you kept it at the level of well, we we cored this uh, lake bottom in Ohio and you found these strata and you didn't go to the global, mm. well, what kind of a story would that be? I mean, in a way, you'd be cut off from its meaning. Right. This is the thing that has been driving my my methodology as a storyteller. Mm.
0: Wow, that's really powerful. I don't know if you saw my CV, stand, but I have literally cored a lake in Ohio. Yeah, you
3: cored, you cored the lake. I did see your CV. This is
0: great. Um, you're absolutely speaking yeah. my love language here. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Producer Justin Shell here with another data story. Dr. Joe Mascaro, who you might remember from an earlier Warm Regards episode, sent us this story about his work as an ecologist and remote sensing scientist given the global nature of his work, we thought it fit nicely with the themes discussed by Eric and Stan.
4: Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Mascaro. I'm a tropical ecologist and a remote sensing scientist. I use a series of different types of data to study the whole Earth system, including satellite data, also LIDAR data, which is essentially data layers created from an active sensor which emits laser light pulses. And we can use LiDAR to understand the structure and volume and the carbon storage within the vegetation on different types of ecosystems on the Earth. Scientists like me that study the whole Earth system use satellite data from a lot of different sources. Uh, One of the most common is Landsat, and it's been collecting data over the entire Earth, basically uninterrupted, although we've now seen a huge explosion in the number of satellites that are producing data. And so scientists have accumulated hundreds of billions of square kilometers of data. Through this long time stack of data, we can see the patterns of change in terms of the loss of ecosystems and human modifications of our environment, the growth of cities, changes in reservoirs, deforestation and forest degradation. And these data sources lead to a a much better understanding of the whole Earth system and, and the human impacts on it.
2: If you'd like to share a data story with us, you can leave us a voicemail by calling 586-930-5286, or record yourself and email it to us at ourwarmregards at gmail.com.
0: One of the powers of science fiction is its ability to help us envision possible futures, not only to warn us about where we could be headed if we continue on our current path, but also what the alternatives could look like if we chose a different one, Given all of the challenges of our current moment, do you think writers have a responsibility to write less apocalyptic futures or to be our guides to something better?
3: I absolutely refuse to um, advocate or preach of what other writers should write about. Everybody's got their own project. And in fact, I get annoyed people like Amitav Ghosh. I just think, go away. (laughs) Write your own book. Do it by showing. Quit telling us what to do. And there is a point to doing dystopia. It's to try to scare people. You don't want to go down that road. It has its use value. And maybe it can be overindulgent. And maybe you need more of the positive stories. I I believe that too. But every writer has to, to a certain extent, the stories choose them. You know, their temperament, their experiences. They don't get to just in a kind of free abstract sense say, oh, I'm going to tell this kind of a story they're forced into it by life itself and so to uh, to tell other other writers what to write i i find it offensive what are your thoughts
1: on that idea eric
2: yeah he was definitely more gracious uh, of course <laughs> i think than my gut instinct was to the question um i feel like i have done some of that i have sort of like as i've been being scared There is, I'm going to, I'm going to say it. (laughs) There is, there is a genre of my age or a little bit younger, sort of like well-educated white male climate writer that writes his scary climate book. And I feel like that is sort of like a thing that people do now. And, (laughs) and I feel like I get the mail from readers of those books writing to me and say like, what the hell is happening? Like, is it actually like, is it worse? Like I've, I see people on Twitter that are like, I've checked out, you know, like there are people that are going through really profound mental distress from reading this. Mm-hmm. And in some cases there is like a kind of a quality of uh, narrative license with the facts. And I'm not saying that any of these books are factually inaccurate. They've done their fact checks. They know uh, what they're saying. They know what they're doing. But written and, and read in context, I feel like at times it feels irresponsible. Mm. But at the same time, you know, like Stan said, that works for some people. You know yeah. there are more people that know about climate change now than before the uninhabitable Earth was written, for example. Like mm. it mm-hmm. changed things in a really important way. And who am I to say whether that was bad or good? Uh, It happened, and a
1: lot of more people are paying attention
2: to climate now because of it.
1: Both of you mentioned the idea of choice when putting your writing together, but you came at it from different perspectives. Stan said the story chooses you, and Eric said that you, the author, make the choice to tell a particular story. So how have your personal histories and experiences influenced your choices in your writing?
3: Well, I'm an American leftist, so that means the Democratic Party, um, the Democratic Socialists of America, the IWW, the whole left tradition in the United Mm -hmm. States, and then also the world. So that political program is a utopian science fiction story attempting to insert itself in the real world and make the story come true by direct action in the world. Mm -hmm. And the stories are in a feedback loop. So first you get the French commune, then you get Edward Bellamy writing, looking backward from the year 2000, then you get the Bellamy clubs, then you get the progressive movement, then you get the Senate uh, elected by the people rather than by the legislatures and in this constant feedback loop of hopeful, positive stories of this could happen if we were to do these things, Mm -hmm. then people doing these things, and then they go wrong, and you have plots, and you have reversals, and you have sometimes quite disastrous unintended consequences or pushback from the right, and on it goes, and that's history. For me, my stories, it's partly, okay, it's biochemical, it's my biochemistry, it's my temperament. That comes from my mom. My mom taught me that you be cheerful no matter what's going on.
4: Mm, So
3: this was a a moral point for my mom that was very important to her, and she taught me that it could be uh, lived uh, in quite tough circumstances. So at that point, um, I'm more or less obliged, or or let's put it this way, I'm on the hunt for good stories and trying to make them sound realistic enough to be persuasive in terms of how people behave.
2: Yeah, um I think that it you know it, early on sort of when I was learning about climate and weather and the system that sustains life on earth literally. Yeah, I mean I feel like I I saw it as this global story where a lot of people were focused on predicting, you know, exactly the temperature to the degree in 3 days time or, you know, exactly when The tornado would form and hit a certain town and that's extremely useful but it just wasn't really where my abilities were Mm -hmm. uh, or where i sort of like felt i could meaningfully contribute so i think that almost really by accident i kind of got interested in in climate change as a manifestation of this sort of like global ethical system where science is overlaid on top of that. So I was just like, I wanted to work in service of, you know, my neighbors and my community. At the same time, I wanted to like nerd out on science. At the same time, I thought, you know, but this is climate change is probably something that we're going to solve. You know, this is me being 20 years old in Mm -hmm. like the early 2000s. Again, like thinking in a techno utopious sort of way, like we're going to fix it without understanding exactly how deep the problem went. And, and so I think that in that sense, the the story sort of found me, mm-hmm. but I was drawn to climate and weather because that's what I'm sort of passionate and obsessed about every day, wake up in the morning, trying to like hope that, you know, today is going to be the day that we get the sort of like the signal from another planet or the, that we get like the Mars landing or that we get, uh, you know, like that grand picture of like humanity's place in the universe is sort of like what drives me every day to wake up. And I think that's sort of like, yeah, you can see that playing out right now with climate on earth. There's these civilizational scale choices that we're making right now. Um, I always think of it on, on that like deep time framework in a global framework in ways that feel inescapable to me. Like, I can't really think of the story in any other way.
0: Eric, you're a meteorologist turned climate journalist. And Stan, you weave a lot of different scientific elements into your novels, from Martian geology to sea level rise. And I'm wondering how each of you uses climate data or climate research more broadly as part of this work of world building that you've both engaged in.
3: Well, I am an English major. I'm married to an environmental chemist. And that teaches me a lot in my daily life of just watching the, the life, the methods, the mindset, the, the collegiality of the way science works in the world today through people. The institutions, uh, my wife's at U.S. Geological Survey. I did a lot with National Science Foundation's Antarctic program. Mm-hmm. Watched the institutions and, and went to Antarctica. That was a uh, climate experience. So all these things, and then my reading, my acquaintances, uh, acquaintances at uh, NASA Ames, um, a planetologist, um, uh, Chris McKay has been a um, 30 year tech resource for me and connects me up with the rest of that community. Uh, The glaciology community is really small and because I went to Antarctica twice, I'm well connected there. And for Ministry for the Future, the main thing I guess I focused on was uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. How much will we put up there? Uh, and, you know, of course, in the ocean as well, that has to be added because it's a significant, because we imagine, and it might be true, that we can turn down the thermostat and suck carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere. But in the ocean, it's not so simple, and the acidification is severe. But what I did was I used that as one index, uh, and there were other things going on on Earth that contribute to that. That's the reason it's an index. A lot of different factors and processes come crashing together. And then we can talk about, you know, parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. And I thought, well, I'm bending the the Keeling curve downward, actually beginning to suck some CO2 out of the atmosphere by decarbonization methods. And then also dropping the rate of the population of humanity um, by women's education, beginning to bring that curve down so that maybe we get to a worldwide human replacement rate of 1.5. Another index of what you might call biosphere health, very powerful. And all these things done by what you could call positive means. In other words, you don't need a police state. You don't need draconian guns in your face, coercion, um, widespread better living, better agriculture. That begins to drop the CO2, maybe direct air capture. So in other words, the sciences are almost the complete driver of my stories If because I want to try to make them plausible and persuasive. I don't want your magic ray gun or the, mm-hmm. or the, the super leader or the various uh, silver bullet techno fixes that you hear, not just in Silicon Valley, but also in the science fiction tradition, right? That's been the game that I play because I find it really entertaining. And I would say it it keeps coming back to being married to a scientist and watching her work and being amused by that as an English major, you know, scientists are funny people and and (laughs) you know that very well. Uh, And I mean, this is in the sense that, like Mr. Spock in Star Trek is Mm -hmm. hilarious. And we only understood that years later, watching the reruns, that he's uh, deeply funny. But he's the great image out of science fiction of the scientist as a character. So, okay, he's Vulcan, right? He's rational. He's reasonable. He has no emotions. But in fact, Spock's mom was human. And so he's a combination of rational, reasonable, essentially the scientist, and then emotional and unbalanced and unstable from his mom. He's very emotional, but he represses that. Well, this is like the perfect hilarious image of the scientist in our culture. (laughs) And it's driven much of my career, really.
0: Since you've brought up Star Trek, one of the things that makes the Star Trek universe such an interesting model is that it's this vision of a post-scarcity world. It's one where everyone's needs are met, at least among the United Federation of Planets. But I'm always finding myself wanting to know how we got there from here. All the steps along the way that sort of got glossed over in the shows. And we just jump into this future with replicators and warp speed. And it's really nice to have that vision of what could be. But I feel like it's actually the pathway to that future that would be so useful to us right now. And one of the things I love about your book, Eric, is that it's very much rooted in the present, but it also uses storytelling to give us this really nice roadmap to this better future. So Eric, while Stan is a fiction writer using science to build his futures, you're kind of coming from the other direction as a scientist using the power of storytelling to basically write us this roadmap towards a better future. You're even using climate data as the signposts along the way.
2: Yeah, exactly. So the future Earth is kind of built around this idea that by 2050, we are in a a zero carbon global economy. And then what would it take to get there? That's sort of like what is needed to reach the 1.5 degrees C target. And so I just said, well, that has to happen. How is it going to happen? And then sort of worked backwards uh, from there a little bit to see You know, I have this whole map. This book actually started as a choose your own adventure book. And now people could like choose their path along the way to see if it was the quote unquote right path. There were about one third of the futures where we ended up doing it and about two thirds of the futures where we ended up not doing it because I felt like that's kind of what the odds are right now. But I just sort of had this this whole list of possible actions that we could do in the 2020s, possible actions we could do in the 2030s. sort of how long would it take to sort of transform agriculture into regenerative agriculture nationwide how long would it take to retrofit and build out high-speed rail like that's going to take a lot longer than it would be to just sort of switch to electric cars but is it better to have cars at all you know in the world that we're going for so maybe it is maybe we should reclaim some of that urban space that is currently used for pavement for housing and other things that we need right now, you know, just sort of saying, like, if we were going to try to do this and be strategic about it, what's the first things that we would do, you know, in the book, and I have the first things that we do is like, we need to restructure (laughs) US democracy so that it's more fair, we need to, you know, get rid of the filibuster, we need to admit new states, we need to do all this stuff. And that's not the kind of the first things that you think of. In a climate book, you would think that, oh, let's build as many solar panels as we we can. But that's not really going to help if we're just using that electricity to like mine Bitcoin or something. So there are moral and technological choices along the way, uh, and all of those play off on each other. So that's kind of what I tried to do. And then the end product ended up being just one of those possible threads in the original book, but it ended up being, you know, my editor said, you need to choose the hopeful one, because that's what people need right now.
0: We've talked a lot this season about how the climate crisis is disproportionately impacting those who have contributed the least to it, particularly Black, Indigenous, and other communities of color. I'd like to hear a bit about how each of you approach this work of envisioning climate futures, but from your own positions or identities in the world.
3: I'm a suburban White, male, baby boomer, house husband. It's got to be one of the most privileged positions in world history. And so I try to uh, keep learning and paying attention. Um, and I follow my wife's lead. And so we're, we're working with the homeless uh, here in Davis, California. And it's very shocking to me. Um, if you have mental illness in America, you are screwed and mm-hmm. uh, hammered by the elements, of course, because mm-hmm. you're homeless. So uh, do try to do some work. And then I'm very impressed by the writers of the Paris Agreement. When they put that agreement together, they insisted on climate equity being part of the deal. So it was not going to mm-hmm. be, even though they're a international organization and UN-based, wasn't going to be a top-down solution, but be aware of the uneven impacts and the fact that the people who have burned the least carbon are getting hammered first and most. So climate equity is written into that agreement in ways that I find as a writer really impressive and they fought over it word by word. And so there's schedule one countries and schedule two countries and there are um, shared but differentiated responsibilities. And so these diplomatic terms, what they mean is the rich countries need to do more and are obliged to do more. And when they signed the agreement, they agreed to do more than the developing countries where um, often in the tropics, often people have less of an infrastructure to cope, less wealth to cope. And so the Paris Agreement was signed and talk about a utopian document. And it it did keep its eye on this Mm -hmm. aspect of the problem of climate justice. So, and I, I noticed that the Green New Deal did the same right from Mm -hmm. the start in the writing of uh, House Resolution 109, Mm -hmm. that also uh, kept its eye on the severe problem of, of climate injustice and tried to make it better by the way they wrote that resolution.
2: It's a really great question and it's always a work in progress. I ask a lot of questions and I try whenever possible to give my platform to marginalized folks in a way that doesn't co-opt their story, but lets them tell their own story in their own terms. Mm -hmm. I'm doing that now, you know, with the Phoenix um, newsletter, trying to do some storytelling or, you know, like hosting storytelling from other people. Realizing that I'm always just like a product of my own experiences in history and cultural context as well like there's no there's nothing really special about me or what I'm doing. And I think that is really important to, to sort of say, like, clearly, there are other narratives that are especially sort of useful right now to everyone that are not only not being told, but are being actively
1: suppressed. And I just want to work against that thrust as much as possible. As you both mentioned, telling human stories about climate change can come from a diverse set of viewpoints. And this leads me to think about how crucial empathy is in building a more just future. As we wrap up our conversation today, I'm curious to know how both of you approach the idea of empathy in your own work. I mean, I just like I can't read or write.
2: News articles about individual disasters anymore, with wondering uh, how those people are going to be doing months and years in the future, once the sort of uh, news media have moved on. So that's kind of ideally, you know, the character that I had, you know, the first version, the um, the choose your own adventure was really a lot more character driven. It was a lot more of like a real novel, a work of fiction, where. Um, You know, the main character was affected by Hurricane Maria, and I was just following that character's next 30 years through their life and what choices they made along the way. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just I feel really deep empathy with people who have, you know, that that sort of like classic injustice of climate change, where the people who are bearing the brunt are the people who didn't cause the problem. So that is really what drives a lot of my work.
3: Yeah, that's so very true. Um, I'm lucky because the novel is an empathy machine. Um, It's designed to do two um, science fictionally impossible things Um, time travel, you go to other times and places, and then telepathy which is the crucial one you're suddenly inside someone else's head so Mm -hmm. the characters in novels, uh, to the extent that you relate to them and, and live their experiences in a kind of dream state or hypnotized Uh, state, well, then you've lived 10,000 lives if you've read a 1,000 books, and this is very useful for um, reminding you of your ordinary empathy that you experience every day with the people around you, and it extends outward to everybody else.
0: Dan, I just, I want to take a moment to say that the Mars trilogy was really formative for me. I read it in graduate school, and there's this powerful moment in Red Mars that I still think about all the time. It comes up in all sorts of different moments in my life, in my career. It's when Anne, the geologist, is expressing her concern about the rush to terraform the planet, and she says, I think you value consciousness too high and rock too little. We're not the lords of the universe, we're only one small part of it. We may be its consciousness, but being the consciousness of the universe does not mean turning it all into a mirror image of us. It means rather fitting into it as it is and worshiping it with our attention. And then there's this moment where she chastises the other scientists with the line, you've never even seen Mars. And I just want you to know that that moment and that character of Anne has just been really important to me as a scientist.
3: Well, thank you. I must say this that book was uh, impossible without the presence of my wife and the example of all of her colleagues but you know Nadia and my the women characters uh, Charlotte the women characters in the Mars trilogy I made serious effort to make sure that there were equal number of point of view chapters Um, and and a gender balance, and uh, well, there's a lot of women scientists in the world today, and it wasn't because of the Mars trilogy, it was because of women getting into the sciences and showing that there was no problem there, and in fact, um, it's kind of beautiful the way your generation of, um, of women scientists have just been kicking ass, and it's fun to watch.
1: We hope you enjoyed our first of two episodes on telling the stories of climate futures. In our next episode, we'll be talking with black writers about Afrofuturist and African futurist perspectives on climate futures. Warm Regards is produced by Justin Shell. Joe Stormer creates our transcripts and Catherine Pinehart is our social media maven. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. You can find a transcript of this episode, listen to previous episodes and find links to subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice on our website warmregardspodcast.com. Also, something that really helps more people learn about our show is if you leave a quick review or rating, especially on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think about our show. You can reach us at ourwarmregards@gmail.com at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Our Warm Regards. This season of Warm Regards is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. Their donations help pay our great team members, Justin, Joe, and Catherine, for all their hard work. If you're interested in supporting the show, you can go to patreon.com slash warmregards. There's also links to the page in our show notes and website. From all of us at Warm Regards, thanks for letting us into your head.